as I was starting to do the research for the book, I was shocked by what I found because I knew there was a problem in journalism. I knew there was a problem in academia from personal experience. What I didn't anticipate was finding the same problem in field after field after field where people of color remained radically underrepresented after 50 years of efforts to diversify. Street, a strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value, this is Word on the C-Street, a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time. Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C-Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C-Street. Today, I'll be speaking with author, journalist, and professor, Pamela Newkirk. I am also thrilled that Pamela has joined C Street's Board of Advisors. In this episode, you'll hear Pamela explain why the billions of dollars being spent on diversity have resulted in so little progress, her belief that when you have a diversity problem, you have a leadership problem, and the importance of empowering people to bring their full selves to work. Pamela, so thank you for being on with us. And what I want to start out with is talking a little bit about your book, Diversity, Inc. You pointed out the major shortcomings of the diversity industry, talking about how diversity in a lot of ways has become a buzzword um, as opposed to people really digging in to make the change that's necessary. Uh, You've talked about the billions of dollars that have been spent, but very little progress actually being made. And my first question to you, though, why C Street? Well, one... I was intrigued by the opportunity to apply much that I learned in doing the research for Diversity Inc. to a practice where we can actually realize diversity. For some reason, I believe that you're going to do this and (laughs) you'll do it. You'll do it with intention. And, And I hope that you attract the kind of companies that are really serious about the mission that are not just coming to you so they can check the box and say that we did diversity consulting, so we're good. (laughs) Because as I note in Diversity Inc., companies continue to spend billions of dollars every year without anything to show for it. And I think many believe that just by going through the motions and hiring either a diversity czar or a diversity consultant, that it's job done. But that's the beginning (laughs) of the journey, right? And so the good news is that there are successful models that if institutional leaders truly have the will and the intention, they can see the needle move. And it doesn't take as much time and money as many would think. It just really takes leadership, will, and intention. Talk about the leadership. How important is it if companies are going to get it right, the CEO and the C-suite to lead on it? Oh, it's essential. Um, There's no way that you will see real change happen unless there is an all-hands-on-deck approach from the leadership on down. People in organizations know what the leader truly values and what they're just paying lip service to. 
And I think when you have committed leadership, it filters down throughout the organization. Everyone knows what the priorities are. I would say that leadership is the most important (laughs) thing. I I think when you have a diversity problem, and, and this kind of steps on some toes when I say this, but when you have a diversity problem, you have a leadership problem because that's where it begins and ends. In your studies and looking at the issues, the leaders who, who actually do make the, the necessary change, do they have things in common that they're doing? First of all, uh, I, I would hope that you will be in conversation with those leaders, that they don't simply send their DEI person and just, you know, marginalize that person. Because what I have found is that the DEI professionals are among the most marginalized people in the organization. And oftentimes they are the diversity, you know, at the executive level. And that is a recipe for failure. When you marginalize that person, when they don't have access to the leadership, when they don't have the resources to get the job done, it's not going to happen. And so first and foremost, you need committed leadership and and they have to be part of the conversation. It can't be something that they kind of farm out to someone else as if it's someone else's problem. (laughs) The leadership has to own this as a personal issue that they themselves have to also deal with. And so I think that's the number one thing in any institution where diversity initiatives have worked is because there was that kind of will and intention from the top. Without it, I don't care how great your DEI person is, it will not work <laughs> with, without that kind of commitment from the top. What successful organizations all have in common is committed leadership. You know, you talked about a uh, lip service. You know, I saw a law firm that huge number of partners that it made. There were only two black partners made, both men. So now one black woman was made a, a partner. And then I went to their website. They were ranked, you know, number one for diversity in 2020. And they got a certificate. If you really do care about diversity, if you've really been doing the right things, then why are the numbers so bad? Part of the problem is that diversity, that term covers such a wide terrain, right? It can include LGBTQI, it can include gender, it can include people with varying mental and physical capacity. It includes so much that it doesn't necessarily have to include racial diversity. So what I have found is that companies that consider themselves diverse can actually receive these certificates without having any real racial diversity. We're sitting in a situation where we have companies that are trying to figure out what to do. Do you think that if companies don't get it right, they're going to be hurt? Or do you think they're just going to continue to kind of move on as they always have and still do fine? I would love to believe that it would actually hurt them. It hurts them in ways that they don't see. When you have a diverse workforce, you have people who are covering 
uh, blind spots, that you have a more dynamic situation when you have people with different ideas, different vantage points, different ways of solving problems. So they may never know (laughs) the ways in which they will be hurt by not having diversity. There have been numerous studies that show that diversity improves the bottom line, that diversity makes for a better problem solving. Those arguments have not worked. (laughs) They have not helped us realize a more diverse workforce. So the way I'm coming at it, this is a a justice issue um, because the bottom line argument often doesn't work when it comes to including people of color in particular. It just has not really move the needle. That argument, people are willing, they've they've shown that they are willing to leave money on the table (laughs) to keep these homogenous work environments. I had the benefit of, you know, this incredible diverse group of people that I started to work with every day, spend time with every day, get to know their families. They got to know my family and it made me want to do more, spend more time focusing on making change. But my, my hope is, is that if we get that leadership you were talking about and the leaders say to the organization, we are going to make these changes. And then you actually get people working together, being included, voices all being heard, that people will see the same thing I saw. To that point, there's so much emphasis on changing hearts and minds in the workplace where we now have to do things differently. We have to actually get more diversity because what happens when people are exposed to different people, that is going to do so much more than any kind of training. We're not trainable when it comes to this, but we can learn a lot from exposure to different people. So I, by being in a diverse setting, it helps us value diversity more. It helps us understand each other better in a way that some spoon-fed training is not ever going to do. Because the biggest problem that we have culturally is that we live in a very segregated society, right? So people are in these silos. And then what happens is when it comes time to hiring, we hire who we know, we hire who our friends know, we hire who we're comfortable with, right? And so because we're so segregated, our churches, our schools, our neighborhoods, people of color are often left out of the loop of, of hiring. In, in these spaces. And so how do you break that that cycle of where we're recycling homogeneity? The only way we can do it is by intentionally breaking that cycle. We have to expand our outreach to networks that have historically been excluded. And there are ways we can break that cycle, but it won't happen unless we intentionally do it. It's not going to happen by osmosis because osmosis is what we've been doing. So I, I totally agree that we need to bring, you know, we, we need to bring diversity and be intentional about it. And so what happens in a lot of companies today is you start bringing in, especially this young, diverse talent, and they very quickly say, wait, I'm not being included here. It's a cycle of, we're hiring, they're leaving, we're hiring, they're leaving. It's where you need that intentionality and that leadership as well. Absolutely. In fact, one of the most 
undervalued tools for increasing and, and retaining diversity is mentoring. And oftentimes, because of the awkwardness we have around race, many people of color don't get sufficiently mentored. And I know I've been in organizations, uh, you know, to give a talk and particularly white men seem to feel that they are not qualified to mentor a person of color, but yet there are no people of color to do it. So (laughs) I'm like, but why won't you mentor a person of color? You know, I've been in spaces where um, someone has told me that they have never talked to to their colleagues of color. And I I say, why? And they say they don't know what to say. So (laughs) this this is where we are, where people are not being pulled in because of this awkwardness that many people have around race. And I mean, ironically, the only way to break that is to have more people of color. And you cannot only have people of color at the lower levels. You need people of color on high as well. They do need models and you do need people who understand the experience of a person of color coming into these these spaces where, where they're like tiny minorities. But on the flip side of that, what I would say is as a person of color myself, we know how to navigate these spaces because it's what we've had to do <laughs> our whole lives. Um, so, but we need people on the other side to meet us halfway too, right? If you have these these places where they're treated like aliens and not like colleagues, yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. So, so I don't I don't want I don't want you to leave without asking a little bit about your um, your background. Oh wow! I grew up, you know, in New York City. Two parents, uh, both I, I would say working class for the most part, except my father was one of these people you couldn't really put in a box because he was not formally educated, but he was like super intelligent and he was an entrepreneur and he owned a lot of real estate and he had an antique business. And he, he was just one of these people who instilled in me this idea that I could do anything I wanted to do, which back then was considered pretty uh, profound. Um, so I, I wanted to be a journalist and I, I didn't see many people who look like me in uh, journalism. And, but there was this one woman, Melba Tolliver, who was one of the first on-air African-American journalists in New York City. And in the 1970s, she was suspended for wearing an Afro on air. They, they first they wouldn't show her and then they just suspended her until she got rid of her afro. And at the time I was a up and coming young radical and I had an afro and I instantly related to her struggle because what it was is a woman with her natural hair being told that she cannot wear <laughs> her natural hair is something that always stayed with me. But also the fact that she had become a journalist was super inspiring for me. And so I I made my way through first journalism school and I worked for four different news organizations where the first three, I was the only African-American. And finally, the fourth one, there were others, (laughs) which was great. So I have navigated these spaces and I think it's given me the kind of insight that when I started writing Diversity Inc., I had 
pretty much seen the, the full circle. I'd seen it, a diversity problem in journalism. And then for the past almost 30 years, I've been on the journalism faculty at New York University. And I clearly saw a diversity problem in academia where people of color remain radically underrepresented. Mm-hmm. And, and so as I was starting to do the research for the book, I was shocked by what I found because I knew there was a problem in journalism. I knew there was a problem in academia from personal experience. What I didn't anticipate was finding the same problem in field after field after field where people of color remained radically underrepresented after 50 years of efforts to diversify. So that that's what prompted me to, to look more deeply into this issue. But your point about that she had her Afro, which was her natural hair, and they were telling her, you need to be somebody different. There, there's not a, I don't think there's a white man around that could say, somebody's told me I have to change. You have to chemically alter your natural hair. <laughs> and, and I mean, for decades, that really has been pretty much the rule. I mean, we today at least have some exceptions to that rule but it's still pretty much the standard. And so that's pretty, it's a metaphor for um, African-Americans, Latinos, anyone who's outside of the white cultural mainstream has to make that adjustment to fit in to the mainstream culture, which is still uh, white culture. I know it's going to now stick with me, but I think that people need to be thinking about, which is, you know, we, we all come from where we come from. And we all are who we are. And there are certain things that we can't change about ourselves, but there's, there's a lot that we can change about how we, we act at the end of the day. And to think about that we're asking people to change who they are to fit a norm as opposed to celebrate who right. people are. Right? And, and I'm happy to say that while that has not changed a lot in uh, journalism, and it has changed in, um, for instance, I have a daughter who's a consultant at a firm that I won't name. Um, after graduating from MIT, uh, she got this job offer and I, she had braids. And I said, well, you're going to take your braids out. And she said, no, if they don't want me and all that I am, I don't want to work there. Now that's different because I would have been without a job. <laughs> there weren't enough of us who took that tax. So I am happy to see that uh, among younger people that that is changing. The strength of your daughter to say, you know, I am who I am and I'm going to go and, and, and be that person. Yeah. And I was relieved it worked for her because I, <laughs> I was somewhat concerned. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Three quick questions. So first one, tell me uh, about something that's been on your mind lately. So it can be a book, a movie, an idea, a quote, anything that you've been fixated on. Oh, my God. Uh, that would be too long a story, but I'm, I'm actually working on a film script with a partner. Very cool. I yeah. can't wait to hear about that. All right. Number two. So kind of give us a hot take. What's something you believe that a lot of people would disagree with? That uh, diversity is hard, that that achieving diversity is, is difficult. It's like rocket science. God, I'm with you on that. And then number three, who's someone you'd love to hear as a guest on the word on the C Street podcast? Uh, well, you know, today we just lost um, Colin Powell. 
Yes. Someone so who I, I had had the great honor to interview and to spend a little time with and who was generous enough to contribute letters um, when I compiled a, a book called Letters from Black America. He would have been a wonderful person to interview for, for this podcast because you talk about a person who uh, changed the game. I mean, you know, diversity. Um, he showed uh, the, the strength, the power of diversity, um, someone who who had um, different ideas thought out of the box, and that was diversity was his gift to the United States. Actually, I love that. Yeah, and it's uh, it is a big loss for us, and it's really sad to wake up and see that news today. But I'll th- I'll think of someone else for you though, who's, who's right. who can still do it at some point. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Word on the Sea Street. Thank you. This was a delight. Thanks for listening to Word on the Sea Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends. You can reach us at info at thecstreet.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecstreet underscore NYC.